What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 143 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Gavin Lang from First Light Guiding. Gavin designed his life around his love for the outdoors, caving, mountaineering, rock climbing, and also facing his fears. Because as we learned throughout the episode, Gavin, when he started, had a huge fear of heights, a huge fear of enclosed spaces. And through his work on himself and challenging himself constantly with his rock climbing and caving, he overcame these fears. And now he teaches others through his mountaineering excursions on how to manage their fear and prevail at the things that they want to accomplish in life by challenging them and putting them in situations that they might feel very uncomfortable in. It's a really cool episode and we go pretty deep on the philosophical side of you know fear-based actions and then the fear that holds a lot of us back in general from accomplishing and designing the lives that we really want. So if you're interested in this type of experience, you know, really cutting through a lot of the insecurities and fears you might have about taking that first step in designing the life that you've always dreamed of, or if you have a fear of heights, if you have a fear of tight spaces, he's somebody who can take you to your limit in a very controlled, calculated way and help you push through those fears and come out on the other side with a better understanding of yourself and really what you're capable of accomplishing. And then applying that to any aspect of your life can be hugely beneficial in living a more fulfilling life. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out that phone and hit the subscribe button on whatever you're listening to this on. It really helps me within iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to this podcast on and, and getting the message out there, ranking a little bit higher and, and getting more listeners to listen to Misfits and Rejects and the message that I'm trying to share with the world through all these really unique inspirational stories of people designing their lives in the way that they want. You know, not all of them have, have known from day one that what they wanted out of life was the thing that they've stumbled into or designed their life around. But by going out and taking that first step and challenging themselves, much like Gavin and facing their fears, they realized that there was a big, beautiful world out there with many paths that they could take that are incredibly fulfilling. So again, subscribing to my podcast, commenting on the podcast, rating the podcast with five stars really, really helps me out. I appreciate it so much if you would take the time to do any of those three things. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this story with Gavin Lang. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Gavin Lang from First Light Guiding. He is a gentleman I was introduced to by his brother. And when I read his bio on his website, knew I had to have him on because he's definitely designed a beautiful life for himself. So with that said, Gavin, welcome to the show. Hey there, Chapin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you and hear your voice. I was very intrigued after reading your bio just about you know, finding yourself you know, born in Ireland, but you know, living in um, New Zealand for the last 19 years and really designing your life around, you know, guiding people, adventure therapy, really taking people to their limits um, through outdoors, 
therapy, climbing, and everything like that. And um, I wanted to kind of dive deeper with you on these topics as we kind of talk and intertwine your life story into all these topics. Sounds like a great plan. Yeah, dude. So maybe you can start with just a little bit of your background. You know, I alluded to you. You were born in Ireland, um, and life has taken you in many different directions from being in a rock band in Belgium to, uh, I don't know, can you kind of give the audience a little bit of your background? Yeah, so I've, uh, I'm have i also a keen traveler. Um, I started out um, going overseas when I was first 17, so I left, left Ireland, went to Belgium, lived there for four years. During that time, I was very close to France, Spain, Italy, um, and, and did a lot of caving. So I actually started out as a caver when I, when I was living in Belgium, making music. So I developed this other sideline passion. And that led me to then skiing and, and adventure in a, in a larger sense. And I think the seed was sown for climbing, rock climbing and mountaineering. That was always sitting in the back of my mind, always very curious. And um, went back to Ireland, didn't quite find I, 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 I fit in there anymore. So whilst I was living in Ireland, I worked for United Airlines and they flew to New Zealand amongst many other places. I came down to New Zealand in 2000 for the first time and just fell in love with this place. So I came back again for a year and that wasn't enough. And within another year, I was back down here again pretty much permanently. So I've been here since 2004 full time and this really is my home. Uh, I, I don't play so much music anymore. I do have my drum kit set up in the living room. Uh, I, I play every day. Uh, I'm not currently in a band because of you know family life and work, etc. But uh, that will come back again. Um, Keith, my brother, we started our first band together. I think when we were 13 and 14, respectively. Uh, music is always ticking along in the background, and of course, I was listening to it. Uh, but my main focus now, uh, I was able to fulfill that desire, scratch that itch for climbing and mountaineering here in New Zealand. So I, I did a, an, a course in advanced, uh, what is it, an, an um, advanced certificate in outdoor recreation leadership. That was my gateway to coming down to New Zealand, living here full time, having at the very least a really good year of fun getting a qualification and hopefully staying longer. And at the end of that, I managed to stay longer uh, by getting employment with Franz Joseph Glacier Guides over on the west coast of the South Island. So two very unique glaciers over on the west coast of Franz Joseph and the Fox. And I got a job guiding tourists around there. At this point, I knew I wanted to be a mountain guide and I worked steadily towards building a logbook that's the you know the best thing you can do just go and do lots of climbing lots of mountaineering glacier travel snow and ice steep gullies all that kind of stuff um and i traveled to peru did my first international expedition in peru and by 2007 pretty much had the prerequisites to do the the first guides exam the first mountain guides exam i was already a full-time glacier guide but now I went to the next level in 2007, and that's when the doors opened to, wow, this huge potential, and uh, well, we get into the next chapter then, which is 
whilst guiding for other guiding companies, I, 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 I've noticed a lot of missed potential to um, guide people, not just physically, not just technically, let's go up to the top of this mountain and stick our arms in the air and all that and then feel like that's it, complete, but also on a personal journey, a journey of self-development or personal development. I could see that huge potential and just through conversations, I, w I would see change in my clients, change in me as well. It was, it was a process of uh, self-development as much for me as for my clients. And uh, lots of other stuff, lots of other life stuff happened in those, what is it now, 12 years um, uh, where I could, I, I built a program uh, very, you know, structured and fluid at the same time where I could um, open people's eyes to what was going on in their own bodies and their own minds and then help nurture some kind of um, sense of peace would be the simplest way to put it. So we're all seeking something and in my mind it's, it's really ultimately all about finding peace, happiness, whatever word you want to put on it. And the the mountains are a great place. They're a great clinic. They're a great uh, hospital. They're a great just na natural, neutral environment for nurturing self-development. So uh, two years ago, I ran the first self-mastery through mountaineering course, and I ran another one this year, and next year I'll, I'll run one in Peru. So that's ever-growing. The, 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 uh, the course grows each year. Sometimes I have a co-facilitator, and uh, that brings in extra energy, different energy, different structures and different flavors to the, to the whole program. Uh, it's a very fluid um, program that just gets better year on year. So my main purpose, I feel, now is, is really not just to take people up mountains and, and tick that list of, yep, I've climbed that mountain, but really – uh, the question that I ask is, are, there, are you working on yourself? Are you trying to become a better person? The greatest question of all, are you actually just trying to be a better person? And uh, if the answer is no, you might want to take a long, hard look at that. <laughs> um, I believe it's quite possibly the most important question. And if the answer is yes, then, well, I'm here to help. I love it, man. That's, I mean, that's so interesting. And I'd like to kind of circle back to a few of the things you said in, you know, as you opened up where it was like, you know, being in Europe, you found caving, you found rock climbing. And I know there's a lot of subsets within mountaineering. Can you mm -hmm. talk to the audience a little bit about what you fell in love with? Because a few episodes back, we had Adam Spillane on who's a caver in Vietnam, you know, and he articulated what caving meant to him because that's his passion. And since that was I think I heard you correctly, kind of the thing that bit you, you know, originally about wilderness is caving and rock climbing. What was it specifically? Well, that's where it all started. Um, what is it specifically? It is a sense of there. there's a certain sort of creative energy in nature when you don't know what's going to happen next. And it's sort of uncharted terrain, or even if it is mapped, it's still unmapped in your mind, in my mind. So, to one person, that can be terrifying, and to another person, that could be the greatest thing ever. So what's what's going on? What's the difference? And gaining some sort of 
perspective on that is how we learn to manage our fears. So that's what I know now. What I knew then was that I enjoyed it. It was good fun. It was challenging. Um, you know, th there's a there's a few things about caving that uh, I don't miss, <laughs> and I don't mean tight spaces. I just mean you're not out in the sunshine. Um, you can't feel the wind blowing, although some caves do have a, a, a strong pull of wind through narrowing sections, and Adam may or may not have mentioned that. Um, so the, the pull for me was that it was a good place to go out with friends, um, uh, challenge ourselves. Um, sometimes it will be very vertical, vertical challenge. Or some, sometimes it will be a horizontal challenge, not so many technical ropes to go up and down, but just a huge exploration, gradually going downhill um, and all, all, the, all the while in the darkness. So there's that edge of darkness where if you don't bring enough battery power and reserve battery, uh, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to end up in complete darkness. And what then? So having that little edge was always the... The, the thing that motivated me. The challenge first, just connected with that challenge, and then secondary was survival. Survival is, it's an instinctive thing for us to want to survive, and we either, again, connect with that and, and enjoy the challenge, or we run away from it, and we try inadvertently to cotton wool everything, to make ourselves safe, to get insurance, to build a bigger house, to build bigger walls. <laughs> You know, get a bit bigger security system. Uh, but we're running away from all the learning that we get from being a little bit on edge, being challenged, being uncomfortable. I like what you just said. That's really interesting when you describe it in that way because I'd like to know in your experience with the people you do take out and test, you know, and make them confront their fears, would you say that they come out on the other side of that challenge with the same sort of exhilaration that, say, somebody who went into it excited about the challenge does? Um, does that make sense? You know, if I go into excited, I come out with a certain amount of um, adrenaline and excitement of accomplishment. Um, do you think the person who's absolutely terrified but faces their fear comes out with a similar experience? Uh, they sound like very different experiences to me. Okay. Um, again, it'd be like a flowchart. I can, I'm starting to visualize a flowchart. On one side, you've got someone who's just um, put all, all of the, the risk and, and just handed it to the other person, and they put complete faith, faith and trust in that other person, all right? And they go, okay, I'm safe because this is a safe system that's audited by someone, <laughs> right? Um and the excitement is just because it's complete unknown and they are basically lobbing themselves off that bungee bridge or whatever it might be, just to use the, the bungee analogy. Um, and then there's someone else who is, even knowing that this system is safety approved, in inverted commas, uh, they just can't get over it. They just, they're beside themselves with fear. They really feel like they're about to die. And that's, a, that's always an interesting person to, to work with. And I, I have worked with them. Quite often people who are aware of a deep fear are easier to work with than people who are completely unaware. If that, unaware, if that awareness is there, they're already 
a step ahead. Awareness, it's the awareness that empowers action. It's the awareness that empowers them to do something about it. If there's no awareness, well, then we have an extra tier of or an extra level of, well, I don't want to call it a problem, but you see what I mean? It's, if this shows up in the middle of your mountain trip and you're just beside yourself with fear, then there is um, a little bit more work to do. And you, it, it, you, you need to obviously step back. If you've gotten yourself in quite deep, then you need to step right back and you reel in the person and their situation and get back to a place, a safe place where, you know, the, the, the rational mind will listen because it, there's a lot of irrationality behind fears. So I don't know if that answers your question. Let's just have a look at that because I can think the flow chart has a lot of parts to it. Um, the flow chart that I originally visualized about, you know, someone who's just excited and someone who is um, um, beside themselves with fear. Let's go to let's go to the one with, who's beside themselves with fear again. Certainly, they, if they can overcome that, will 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 gain something that's far bigger uh, than the person who's just gotten a buzz out of it. So, someone who is overcoming their fears will get a whole lot more out of this experience. Um, that's that's you're talking basically about me, right? <laughs> I was scared of small spaces, claustrophobic, and I have a fear of heights as well. What was my first major sport that I really fell in love with? Caving. I dealt with that one. And then the second, and, and there's a bit of the element of, of heights in there as well, of course, when you're um, abseiling a you know, 160-meter pitch in, in darkness, that could be good and bad, so you can't see the bottom, but that can also feel, wow, you got this sense of echo in there, and that's about it. Um, but the, the fear of heights, I, I do feel really comfortable on a mountain, but that's after working with this for so long. Originally, I was shit scared of hanging on a rope. In the caving days, I was just really shit scared of committing to the rope for an abseil or whatever. So, but I feel like I've gained so much out of that and not just skills in caving or skills in climbing, but skills in life. And then I can apply that to everything. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think what I took from that is there's a certain amount of irrationalness to everyone's approach. You know, whether you're not scared at all and you're ready to take that bungee jump without and just give yourself to the person who's rigged it. I mean, that's kind of an irrational way to approach it. And it's equally as irrational to be completely terrified of X, Y, Z when you haven't really thought through that the other person has made sure it's going to be as safe as possible for you. You know, and there seems to be like maybe a, a middle ground that is probably the better place to operate from. Yeah. Managing your fears, managing your fears, the key to really unlocking uh, what it is you want in life in general. Um, it's, it's no surprise that so many corporate entities have, have caught on to, you know, trust building, team building and stuff like that, because yeah, when you face fears, there's, there's this sense of, 
overcoming something, uh, a, a hidden enemy, and it is, it's an intangible enemy. Um, but it, it, even enemy is the wrong word. It's, when it's used right, it's, it's a motivator. It's a huge motivator. Um, it's uncomfortable to be in that position all the time, and it's not good for our, our bodies to be constantly stressed um, because stress then can show up as a, as a problem um, or an injury or a disease in the body. So that's not totally healthy either. But knowing how to manage fears and know, knowing when the right time is to sort of step into that, knowing the, dif the difference, uh, not the difference, but equally hand in hand, risk and consequences. What's the risk? And what are the consequences? So what is the likelihood of something happen happening? You know, the, the, the real risk there. And what are the consequences if it goes wrong? So it could be, so they, and this, I apply this to all mountaineering trips. Um, you could also apply it to business. So there's a low, moderate, or high risk. And then there's a low, moderate, or high outcome or consequence. And when both of those are high, you have a problem. When you have um, high consequences but low probability, low risk, uh, you know, you've got something to work with. And, and in mountaineering, that's not uncommon, um, uh, more so than, let's say, rock climbing. Um, and so you see what I'm saying? There's, a, there's, there's always a matrix you can, you can work back to and say, okay, what are the, what are the hazards here? And what are the consequences? What's the likelihood? Sorry, better word. What's the likelihood and what are the consequences? Absolutely. You know, with you um, obviously putting yourself in a position that you're you were claustrophobic, you're afraid of heights, but you put yourself in a position where you're constantly facing your fears. I'm imagining you eventually habituated to that sensation that you would initially get from standing on top of a mountain or climbing into a dark space you know and then you, you talked about how subjecting yourself to a consistent amount of fear isn't also good for stress levels so then how did you do it in such a systematic way that you were able to break through those barriers great question so what i've what i've seen is that um our thresholds can be raised and it's a motivational thing we, we, we're not really interested unless it's high risk. So therein lies another danger, <laughs> you know what I mean? So if I'm a Formula One race car driver, I just want to go faster, right? And if I'm a mountaineer, I want to climb something steeper and harder and just off the scales, dangerous, so that, you know, I'm, I'm actually waking up this part of my brain that it, it, it lies dormant. So... If you or your listeners have, have, have listened to, uh, have, sorry, watched Free Solo, there's an explanation in there about Alex Honnold and part of his brain that's, you know, it's not really stimulated. It's not activated unless it's a high risk situation. Again, there's two ways to look at that. One is that, well, this guy is a, is a freak or he's trained really hard and he, he has inadvertently gain some mastery of his mind. So the, the 
the the firing up of that part, the reptilian brain, the one the the amygdala, it doesn't happen unless it's a really, really, really dangerous situation in that person's mind. And where do you think you fall in that spectrum at this point after the years of subjecting yourself to your fears you find it now has to be extremely high or extremely claustrophobic for you to stimulate that part of your brain mm. uh, it when i'm guiding it's it's uh, so i have this extra awareness or an extra level of awareness because when i'm guiding i lower the thresholds yeah i have to lower the thresholds because if i if i'm climbing like alex honold to use him as an example, then I've just gone too far and I've got no backup for my client. They have paid me and signed a con we've signed a contract for me to keep them safe and bring them home. So my job is to actually get them as close to that. And, you know, it, it, it's not usually hard, um, but I get them as close to that as I can without putting them in harm's way. Danger is ever present because we're in a natural environment, a rock could fall or a piece of ice could come down or whatever, but we're working with, you know, low to moderate in each of those categories, probability and, and consequences. So is my threshold really high? I do feel that sometimes, that laziness of the brain, and some people see that I don't react um, like, you know, for out with my child or, or someone else on the hill slips over, I won't react because this, this part of my brain can see the whole thing panning out and I go, they're just going to stop. Nothing's going to happen. But when, when, when the time comes and I see a scenario that really I can see the consequences, well, I move faster than you can possibly imagine where a reaction is required. So there's always something there ticking away, checking things out, always assessing. And um, and then all of a sudden I get a burst probably of, of adrenaline, the heart rate goes up, the whole lot, and I start and I react. Um, does that answer your question? Oh, it totally does. And I was sitting here thinking of an analogy that I've been using a lot lately with my my niece and nephew and my sister to friends, which is, you know, parents are always uh, – trying to prevent their children from getting hurt where uncles, which I am one is calculating how hurt they're going to get, you know, like yeah. Throughout yeah, yeah. Their, whatever <laughs> they're doing. And I'll jump into action the second I think it's going to be real bad, but if they're just going to take a digger, yeah, I'll probably let it happen. Yeah. 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 If they're just going to fall over or something like that and get a knock or a bang or whatever, they're just going to learn one of life's, life's lessons. And if you're not someone who's keen to wrap them in cotton wool, you're thinking that's okay. Right, they're just going to fall over and and scratch whatever. Nothing too serious. They'll actually learn a lesson, which is very important. Um, cotton wooling everything and mitigating every hazard is just going to create problems down the track. 100%. So, yeah, you want if you've been tasked with looking after your niece or nephew or whatever, naturally you want to hand them back in in good shape. <laughs> or you'll never be allowed to touch them again, uh, you know? Yep, just like your clients. Um, you know, what kind of clients do you get? Can you describe the type or the archetype of a client that you normally get or if there is one and then what they experience? I know you customize these trips for individuals, um, but does your package kind of encompass the same sort of uh, – cri not criteria, but um, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but – 
would, would you make create a, a, the same package for every single client that comes? Well, no two trips are the same. So that answers that one. Uh, there is a, a common saying that I have that if someone comes to me to be guided, it's because they need guiding. And the reason I say that is because on paper, they may look really fit and really experienced. And that's just what I've found out is that that's never true. If they come, if they ask to be guided, I take them at their word. And I presume that they just don't have the mileage or experience or, or, or volume of experience that they're after for the particular task. So, so we build in, I build in a buffer and I don't overcommit to, yeah, let's get you this objective. Um, I will always build in a buffer if I have doubts and I'll, and I'll, and I'll say, let's work on, on that. And if, and if that works, then, then I've gotten the information I need from that smaller client. It'll also be a warm up. It'll be a get to know each other kind of thing, how we communicate, how we operate, what technical skills you have or don't have what fitness you have or don't have. And then we go from there. So it, it, it most of my trips are run one-to-one. So it doesn't matter what my, what condition my clients show up in. Uh, it's the self mastery through mountaineering courses that I, I run a slightly higher ratio. Um, because it's less technical, it's less about mountaineering. We're in a mountaineering environment, but it's not about let's go climb the hardest thing we can during this week. So the ratio can be higher. But in the one-to-one scenario, we've got a situation where you just show up as you are and we'll work to your strengths and abilities and weaknesses and, and we go from there. So it's on that note, it's easier to work with someone who's fit and has no technical skills doesn't know how to tie a knot or put their harness on or put their crampons on, then it is to work with someone who knows how to tie knots and fancy things and has all this gear but has no fitness because we, we won't get very far. And, uh, and the environments, you know, mountaineering environments, it's generally fairly uh, physical. Once you rope up for glacier travel, start head out, from either base camp or the hut or whatever, you're usually working, it's a long day. You know, could be six, could be 12 hours, could be 15 hours round trip for the, for the summit day. Um, in New Zealand, it's not, that's not untypical. Uh, a 12 to 15 hour day is kind of normal on the big day. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I hear a lot of crossover in what you do versus what I do uh, with my surf retreats down in Nicaragua. You know, I, I get a lot of uh, you know doctors, lawyers, um, contractors, and all coming down with the idea of their level of experience, which is usually vastly over exaggerated in their minds. Yeah, and me yeah. having to allow that buffer and then also subject them to. The harsh reality in a in a kind way of you know this is actually where you're at and we're going to definitely test your limits but we're going to uh start setting realistic sort of goals and expectation for your progression as a surfer yeah yeah and and naturally you're providing the service i'm sure you do this but when you find that someone slips through the cracks and and you you find out they're very different to what they um signed up as then you introduce more questions or t- streamline or tailor your questions so that you get 
more information on that. Um, it, a, a short conversation usually helps as well. And I do that with all my clients. So usually talking for about an hour before the first trip. So I gather information on both those levels, but still go into the first trip with an open mind. And many, many of my clients are repeat clients, so I don't have to go through that again. Mm. Can, you, can you talk to the audience about the, the trips themselves? Um, you alluded to there being uh, trips for more experienced climbers versus not-so-experienced climbers. Um, can you talk us through the, the differences and then the length of time in which you're out with them and then the different locations around the world that you host these uh, experiences in? Sure. Sure, I'd love to. So my base here is pretty much in the middle of the Southern Alps. Um, I live in Wanaka, and I've got Mount Aspiring National Park close to me, and Mount Cook National Park is about a two-hour drive away. And in between both of those is the biggest concentration of, of the big peaks in New Zealand. Um, that's the main place I, I, I guide, those two places, the main two places that I guide here in New Zealand. Um, overseas, I've guided in Peru more than anywhere else, and I'll go there next week. On, on Wednesday, I leave for Peru for a, a three-week trip. Um, I've also guided in Nepal. I've guided in Patagonia. Um, I go to Australia for personal rock climbing and Thailand and various other places usually sort of combine it with a nice sunny holiday. And I'm also I'm working on an Antarctic uh, adventure as well where we, we take a yacht from Ushuaia down to the Antarctic Peninsula, and it's about a three-week round trip. And uh, that's planned for February 2021. So my style is to, is to tailor-make a trip, but it, just to – wet people's appetite, I will ask myself, where do I want to go on the planet? Where's next? And Antarctica is next, basically. <laughs> I want to go to Antarctica. So I start investigating and I start doing logistics. And I, I love doing logistics and doing the research and finding out, you know, what's it going to, what's it going to cost to hire a yacht to sail down and uh, get a skipper for that time. Um, um, by the way, just as on a side note, I'm also facing another fear there. I've never really sailed, and I want to. So I'm sort of add, adding that into the mix and checking out which of my current clients and, and obviously future clients are interested in, in joining me on something like that. Um, so I'll guide anywhere in the world. I'll, 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 if someone says to me, I would like to go and climb in Kyrgyzstan, I'll say, okay, Let's have a look. Do you have anything in mind? No? Okay. Let's have a look at Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan or something like that. Or they might say, I want to go and climb a 7,000-meter peak. Okay. Anywhere? And they say, sure. I kind of have my eyes on, on, on the Himalaya, but I could be anywhere. And then I'll sort of narrow it down. The more information I get, the more I can tailor it. But um, I, 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 I can go anywhere with that. Um, there are um, – there are so many places. It's it's usually about me going to clients saying, "This is what I've got. This is the sort of, this is the kind of trip. This is the style and the flavor of of the trip. Uh, would you like to come along?" It's kind of rare that clients will come and say, uh, "I just want to go somewhere um, adventurous. Uh, don't don't care where we go." <laughs> That's kind of rare. Um, I have a couple of clients who say. 
I want to go where you haven't been yet because they've tapped into the magic. They see how extra inspired I am by going somewhere I haven't been. Now, the trips are not about me. The trip is about them fulfilling what they want to. And ultimately, I will go and say, well, here's what I've found. This, this is where I want to go. And this is what I've found out about it. Are you interested? And they say, yeah, I'm keen. They don't want me or them to go and follow a conga line up this, the southwest ridge of Everest or something like that um, up from the South Col. Um, they don't, they're not interested in that, and neither am I. They want to go somewhere different. Uh, even if that's at the at the um, at the expense of, let's say, a lower ch- probability of success, which has happened. Amada Blam is in the Kumbu Valley. It's on the way to Everest. A lot of a lot of climbers on the way to Everest see that for the first time on the way to Everest, and they say, "Wow, look at that mountain! It's beautiful." And I've for a long time I wanted to climb that. I put it to a client. And I said, but we're not going to climb it in high season. We're going to climb it in the off season because there will be about 10% of the tents on the mountain. And it is very steep. It's very narrow. Some of the base, some of the camps, the high camps have space for five or six tents. I've got no interest in fighting over tent space and just at the mercy of other people bumbling around and dropping stuff on us. Let's go in the off season knowing that there's a lower chance of success. And we gave it a go, and we had a great time. Total success in every sense, except we didn't quite make it to the summit. <laughs> so I've got, I've got a, a happy client, despite the fact we didn't get to the summit. I'd like more of those kind of clients to, to show up, but they're kind of rare. This is interesting, actually, to me, because you know, as you talk about guiding in these places that you've never been, um, as somebody who doesn't know anything about being a mountain guide, wouldn't you uh, need to have more experience, like actually within the country and the terrain, to guide somebody up a mountain like that? Or are you hiring a Sherpa? Are you like the sole guide, or do you have extra like support and help through the locals when you do guide these people? That's well, what you know. You've you've spotted um, the weakness. I don't know the terrain. And really, when it comes into it, the mountain itself, when it comes into the technical climbing, it doesn't matter what that looks like. You can, I can get a lot of information beforehand, but that, that part doesn't matter so much. What really matters is the client comfort in the lead up to getting to, let's say, the base camp. So I hire local guides, and um, that, that totally fulfills all of that, where we should go when we get to each village where we should eat, and, and we're guided by that local. So we hire a couple of porters. They carry the bags from, from town to town. Uh, it supports the local economy as much as anything else. So we have a guide and two porters trailing around with just me and my client. And then when we get to base camp, those three disappear, and it's just my client and I. That's it. Um, we I should say we have – we then meet the the uh, um, the cook uh, at base camp, who who's looking after um, just general meals when we're back at base camp. For me, as a New Zealand-based mountain guide, I'm very used to cooking and organising every aspect. So when I go to somewhere like Nepal to have the base camp meals pre- prepared, is a real is a real sort of it's 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 quite foreign to me. 
And, and it takes a bit of getting used to, oh, someone's fussing over me because I'm their client as much as my client is their client. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So um, the technical mountaineering it doesn't, it, it, that's what I do. And there will be some unknown, but that's where the interesting part of it is, the challenge. There will always be a first time to climb it. You know, every, every Everest guide has climbed it for the first time at some point. So you're not sort of born with experience, but all of the experience, all the mountains you've ever climbed, you put it together and the only unknown is the actual mountain, putting your feet on it, the experience of putting your feet on it and moving up. So that's, that's a minor part of, of the whole equation. Having the background, having the experience, that's the most important part. And then the subtle things, as I said, the client experience is greatly increased when, when I hire a local guide to take us around and, and, you know, take us from town to town or village to village and show us where to eat and show us where to sleep. Mm. Yeah. Is this a normal approach? I mean, I just had a friend, he's actually on the podcast, Matt Wood climbed Everest and he, you know, had a guide, a Sherpa he hired for the whole way up. He's a very experienced mountaineer. Um, so it just, it's curious to me, like when you say you, you have the logistics plan just to get to base camp and then you and your client, tackle the actual mountain on your own for the first time where neither one of you or has been up it with you know anybody else it's different and i like that i don't want to be yet another company with herds of people following behind so first light guiding is very much a niche a boutique guiding company it is a very personalized guiding company so I don't work off economies of scale and massive leverage and having four people following me or or better still, or worse still, uh, 12 trekkers on the same route. It's just me and my client. And I give them full attention. And we work, uh, coming back to the whole self-development thing, every trip, on every single trip, whether you've asked for it or not, we work on that self-development stuff, by the way. Mm. The personal development, the self-development stuff. It's all relationships. Um, if to use a softer word, because some people are not really interested in self-development or not as interested. So every trip you get that included. And the bigger the group, the more diluted that becomes. So I, I really, uh, I, I, that's my focus. That's what I'm good at. And, uh, and that's why I, I, I believe I have a, a high return rate of clients, repeat customers, because they want to have you know, they want to grow on that experience. They trust me now and they want to go somewhere else. And quite a few of them will say, where are we going next? And I will say, I don't know yet. Let me work on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or I'll say, what about this place? I've got this X, Y, or Z. This is something that's in the back of my head, has been for a long time. I'll go and investigate further if you're interested. I love it. I love how you designed your life. It's really fascinating. Um, are are your adventures all inclusive? I mean, is it just kind of a one one time payment your client gives you, and then you take care of everything else? Yeah, yeah. I, I or I, I I try to make it so. Um, at the bottom of every itinerary that I've got online, it will say inclusions and exclusions, and the you know this the, it might appear normal, but. Um, Standard one is on an international trip is is that um, international flights are not included and your own insurance. 
I can include that if you like, <laughs> but the figure, when I hit you with the figure, it's like, oh, hold on. So it, it's sort of a competitive edge as well, and it helps um, put some responsibility back on the client to say, um, you know, you figure out your own international uh, trips to your own desire. It, it makes it simpler as well because so many of my clients are working all over the world and they combine. And if I get involved in that, that can be quite complicated. I have helped clients with that at no extra charge. So if that's necessary to get the get the trip over the line and take some stress out of their life, I will. But I don't uh, I don't charge or I don't make a commission on their international flights or anything like that. So international flights and insurance are not included. And in New Zealand, generally, helicopter flights are not included. Not always. There is the self-mastery through mountaineering that I run in New Zealand. The helicopter flights are included. So I try to make everything uh, inclusive so that there's one figure and there's no hidden costs. And so I generally say, let's take Peru for an example. Huaraz is the town we go to. It's about a a nine-hour bus ride north of Lima. And I say the trip starts at 3 p.m. on day one and finishes at uh, midday on day 16. And everything that happens in between there is included, except your alcohol. Right? So your, all your accommodation, transport, national park fees, all the food in town. So no, no other guiding company does that. Even the food, the meals back in town you need to pay for yourself. All of those meals are included. Everything, one ticket, one price. So you just need to get your flight, get your insurance, uh, get your bus. And I give all the logistics on that. Here's the bus and here's how it works and so on. And and my client shows up on time and we get going on time. Um, So it's usually for an international trip X, whatever town we're starting in on a particular day at a particular time. And once it starts, all costs are included. One thing that really um, intrigued me when I was going through your website was uh, your daily debriefs with your clients. And I know you have a background in uh, photography and videography. And for example, with me and my clients, I film all of our sessions as we're surfing. And then we have nightly debriefs where I'm talking about, okay, here's what you did on this wave and this is what you need to work on. Um, What are your daily debriefs like? How do you incorporate that into your packages? Well, usually there's a... a, um I, I, I will also video for the sake of making a good story, but it's also a bonus souvenir for my clients. Uh, when it comes to the self-mastery through mountaineering course, I haven't um, recorded everything yet because a lot of private stuff goes on in that course. We deep dive into a lot of personal stuff. Um, but it, it, at some point in the future, I would like to get a, a completely independent cameraman in to shoot that and record absolutely everything. And then the material then would obviously be um, edited and would go to the clients first to see what they're happy with um, and be sensitive about that. Do you want to disclose this so that someone else can learn from it? Um, but um, it, wouldn't be any, it, it wouldn't be anything that people haven't heard before. It's just that they might feel a little bit uh, sensitive about sharing it with maybe their immediate family. The, people discover stuff on these courses that they never realized before. They never said out loud. They always they always knew deep down in their hearts, that's, um, and the answer came from them. But actually admitting it in the moment is uh, is huge. 
And so if, if it mean if in order to keep their modesty and not create any embarrassment around anything they've said and just let them grow on that, um, I would then approach them and say, uh, um, let me know if there's anything in there you're not happy with before we release this and get waivers and disclaimers and make sure everyone's happy. So our evening debriefs tend to be about um, the stuff that came up during the day. There'll be, uh, you know, um, things that um, things that need improving and things that went well and, and then highlights. And there's, a, you know, like in any debrief, there's a whole there's 100 different ways to approach it. I will work with the client and um, their specific, what would you call it, caliber. So some are not so fluffy and not so much into the energetics of things. So we may not talk about the chakra system, <laughs> right? But essentially, this is all about energy, energy moving from here to there. And I may just call it a blockage. I may just, I may not even call it a blockage. It may just be, well, okay, so what's come up for you today? Or what's, what are you holding back on? I felt that you, I noticed this, I, and is this holding you back somewhere in, else in life? And, and so it unfolds. It's usually very easy on a seven day trip. My, my standard trip in New Zealand is seven days, but certainly on a 16 day trip to go through these things and build on them the next day. That's, that's really why mountaineering is such a beautiful uh, vehicle for self-discovery. Because day in, day out, you're working on this. You're, you're sleeping on it. You're coming back to it again the next day. This is worth absolute gold. Um, the work that psychologists and, and psychiatrists do is, is fantastic. But an hour to an hour and a half session, and then off you go again back into whatever you're doing, it's kind of limited. So I don't pretend to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I am working with people working on themselves, not just sort of saying, connecting the dots of saying, here's the problem and, and you just stop doing that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to unblock energy. I'm trying to uh, help them unblock energy, more importantly. I'm no Reiki healer. I'm no, I don't help people's chakras spin in the right direction. I'm not that kind of airy-fairy, right? But bringing attention or awareness to something empowers people to then take action, make change, make adjustments, improve. This is just about being a better person. Call it self-development. That's the buzzword, right? Self-development, self-mastery. But we're just after happiness. We're about moving it along, and mountaineering is a great way of doing that. It's such a good vehicle. It's such a good environment. It's the most magical clinic for this to happen in, and it does. It sounds like you bring – Eastern and Western philosophy into your approach based on what you think the client will be most responsive to. Is that kind of correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't use any fluffy language if, if my client's not interested. I see. And then, you know, going back to what we kind of started the podcast episode with, you know, that fear um, that you face, you know, with, we, we talked about fear of heights, fear of spaces, but would you say that everything that your client's working through is based in fear? You know, it's not just the fear of heights and fear. It's fear of being loved, giving love, fear of being successful, fear of failure. I mean, would that be pretty much the common thing that threads all of your clients together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it, it, it's the thing that stops us from growing. And likewise, it's the thing that will help us grow the most. So if we understand the fear, it's at that point where the growth happens. So we can either walk away from it and miss the learning, or we can um, observe it, pull it to pieces, you know, unpack it, find the learning. That's always where this, the, the discomfort always comes from, uh, sorry, the learning always comes from the discomfort at that moment of, oh shit, I need to get off this train. It's, it's moving too fast. Let me off. This is too much new. We're going into uncharted terrain and I don't know where it's going to let me off. Um, if that's what you do, you're missing a golden opportunity to, to grow, to learn the lesson. And it will be uncomfortable. No, there's no self-development unless you're occasionally getting uncomfortable. And the more used to that you get, the the more you'll fast track. There is no fast track by buying more courses and all the rest of it. Sure, do lots of courses. Absolutely. Do lots of courses. Get faced with this stuff more often. But the, the facing it properly and working through it right to the end. And there is no end, by the way, so the, the, don't try and find an end in it. There is no end, it's a constant uh, process. It's an ongoing, lifelong thing. And I'm as much an amateur in it as any as anyone else. I put my hands in the air and I say, look, I'm, I'm also learning here, and I'm gonna learn with you. Uh, but these are the lessons I've um, learned along the way, and these are some of the strategies I use, and I'm happy to share those. Um, but I don't have all the answers. So then in that search for peace and happiness that you alluded that we're all searching for in the beginning, um, is that something that you found or think you'll find or have found? Um, is that something that we can attain? It's, it's my number one goal. I was about 10 years ago. I, I, I came across like a chronic physical injury. Um, it was constant low-level pain three herniated discs in my neck. Uh, long story short, I was guiding too much. I found a job that I absolutely loved and I overdid it. And my body said no. And I learned the hard way um, that so many things were wrapped up in me being physical. And that's where the real learning started. So my whole ego is wrapped in this idea that, you know, I'm a mountain guide and I'm physical and I can do anything I want until I couldn't. So major, major spiritual learning, if you, if you will. That's where the, the real change happened. I had to surrender to the fact that I may not be able to guide again, that I may not be able to be so physical that I might not be so fit ever again or, or, or go back into any mountains, guide anyone. So my whole career was on the line. My physicality was on the line. So the question was, what's left? And that's where the real growth happened. What's left? Well, what are my values? What do I stand for? What's it all about? And that, the answers to those questions should remain the same, whether you're physically capable, able, or disabled. They should be the same. And it all comes down to what you were talking about, relationships, love, and self-contentedness, happy in your own skin, self-knowledge, self-mastery. You don't need 
mountains to become a master of yourself. But the funny thing about them is, is that they force you into this kind of meditation, much like the racing car driver. He is completely focused. He or she has got complete focus. And that's what people come back to the mountains for time and time again. And just to add on to that, because that's what I do, <laughs> conversations in the mountains, they go around and, and there's huge learning. But what I try to get clients to be aware of is that, um, yes, this may be your first uh, experience of meditation, that complete focus that you need to have to get up and down the mountain safely. That may, may be your first meditation, but it's not, it's not real meditation, whatever real meditation is. I'll get back to that. It's not real meditation. Uh, it doesn't last. And if you go home and you crave that mountain experience for the other 48 or 50 weeks of the year until you get back into the mountains, you've missed the point. And you're going backwards because craving is the worst thing you can do. Craving that meditation. Oh, I just need to get back into the mountains and then I'll feel whole again. The wholeness that you're looking for is in you. It just happened to show up when you're in the mountains. So I feel like my job is not to make people slaves to the mountains or slaves to coming back on the Gavin trip or the first light guiding trip or whatever, but actually empowering them to be completely independent of me and know that peace and happiness and self-mastery is contained within them and give them some tools to help them get back there, back at ground level, at sea level. If I feel like I've failed if I don't do that. So that's a tall order. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. But it sounds like, you know, that, that focus you described that you have in the wilderness – that they experience when they come experience these trips with you, that focus, that stillness of mind, that intense presence is what you kind of alluded to as being that thing within you that can bring you peace and happiness anywhere in the world, whether you're um, in a situation that you're unhappy in or um, having to go home and instead of craving that um, experience again and waiting 50 weeks to get to it, you can just be present and that presence will bring you that same sort of peace and happiness, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You perfectly summarized it. If, um, if we look at the teaching of the Buddha, he explained, and I agree, that uh, all, all misery comes from either craving or aversion. Craving or aversion. I want this to happen, and it doesn't happen. Oh, we have a problem. I'm miserable. I don't want this to happen, and it happens. Oh, we have a problem, and I'm miserable. Right? <laughs> and then aversion, craving, aversion. We just oscillate between one or the other constantly, all day long, to a greater or lesser degree, and we just embed ourselves with all this misery. Now, there's, you know, the, 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 a lot of the teachings sound very miserable, but there's, it's only miserable if there's no way out, if there's no solution if there's no practice and the practice is basically um uh, observing the moment as it is if we could just do that observe this moment here and now this has been written about by saints sages scholars buddhas you name it every kind of wise person observe the moment as it is with the, without reaction 
and uh, and that's what I teach. So you know, the the <laughs> it, it, it's it's just common law. It's universal law. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do: just distill everything down to common universal language or law. And uh, if if I can surround myself with clients who are interested in doing that then there's an extra bonus for me because I, I get to do it. I, I get to surround myself with people who are motivated to do that. And we're all speaking the same language. We might all be different at different levels, but um, we can all learn from each other. Um, so you hit the nail on the head. Well, I mean, it's so beautiful to, to see somebody designing their life in the way you have and, and really living their truth, their passion. If you could speak to one audience member out there who's hearing your story, inspired by it, wants to get out there and and take that first step in the direction towards a lifestyle that they've always dreamed of, what would you tell them? As you are. Profound. Not as you'd like to be, but just as you are. All right, my man. Well, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you and love you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Awesome, Gavin. Thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your own personal experiences with dealing with fear and overcoming a lot of the fears that you have in your life and continue to challenge yourself in overcoming. As you stated, it's a lifelong process that there really is no end that is accomplishable except the small wins or even huge wins that we can have through just the constant awareness of trying to be present and instead of running from or running towards, as you said, pleasure-seeking activities or avoiding activities that we're afraid of or don't want to do, we can find true peace and fulfillment in no matter what situation we find ourselves in. But therein lies the true power that can really take us anywhere we want to go in life and help us design any type of life we want within this lifetime that we've been given. So thank you again for coming on and sharing. It's, it was such a pleasure chatting with you and hearing your philosophy and, and what you do and how you help shape people's lives all around the world. Remember, if you're somebody who thinks this is interesting, you can reach out to Gavin and learn a little bit more about some of his custom excursions around the world and how he'll really cater to you, your needs, your wants, your desires, and move you more towards that person that you're striving to become. And please remember to hit that subscribe button. That would be awesome. I'd be greatly honored if you would do that for me. Just hit subscribe, rate this podcast with five stars, leave a comment. All three things would be amazing if you did one. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I think you all are so very, very beautiful. I hope these stories are motivating you to take that first step towards the life that you've always dreamed of. And I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.